it is uh, September 21st, 2014. We are about to leave for Romania, some of us. Some are going to stay here. Whether here or there, we're going to advance the gospel. Amen? Amen? Because that's what our lives are about. The reason we just got through praising the beautiful king, the amazing king, is because we want everyone to know him. We want to be full of his character, full of his authority, full of his reputation. And we want to take that to the whole world on this side of the world and the other. Amen? Amen. A better amen? Amen. All right. I'm not going to let you sleep today. It's a small enough church today. I'm just, we're going to encourage you. Amen? The message today is called Battle Cry. Battle Cry. So, whether attacked from the outside or attacked from the inside, you can turn on the news and see that the spirit of the Antichrist has declared war on Christianity. It shows up in the way that our government is starting to turn against. It shows up in the way that the once obscure satanic religions of Islam and so many others are on the rise. It's almost like the sharks think they smell blood in the water. I want to tell you something though. We were born for such a time as this. Inside... We're attacked by apathy and immorality. The church has got a lust for things that are not of the kingdom of God. And that's many of us included. May not be me this moment, but it has been me even this week. We're in a daily tug of war, a struggle between the dirt that we were made from and the heavenly substance that has been breathed into us. One messenger of God said this week, when God breathes into you, he expects you to breathe back. If you look into the word respiration, it has to do with having respirited yourself. And I feel like I just got full. Whether attacked across the street or across the world, we have an immeasurable advantage. The strength of this church and the church of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with the 45 that I like to carry. It's got nothing to do with the might of the American military. It's got nothing to do with the arm of man. Turn with me to Second Chronicles 13. When you get there, find the 10th verse. And please everybody tell me there when you are there. I, I just want the whole world to know I love to speak in other tongues. If that bothers you, just consider it a me and Jesus kind of thing. If you're interested in it, I want to assure you it can become a you and Jesus kind of thing. Uh, As far as I can tell, everybody who wants to be filled with the Holy Ghost and speak in other tongues gets to. I have uh, never prayed for somebody who wanted to receive and did not receive. So if that has been your experience, uh, I'll issue you a personal challenge today. I won't quit if you don't quit. Stay and get filled with the Holy Ghost. Amen. Second Chronicles 13, starting in verse 10. As for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken Him. Is there an amen in the house for that sentiment today? This is a time period of civil war in Israel's history. Rehoboam has split with Jeroboam. We have descendants after Solomon now beginning to carve up and divide the kingdom that is God's nation. The same way that we had a Protestant Reformation, and then it began to split and has split and split and split. 
on every town in this country. There seems to be churches of every variety, every order. Some believe in fermentation. Some believe in no fermentation. Some want to dunk you all the way under the water. Some are, are, are pleased to just sprinkle you with the water. There is any number of divisions in the body of Christ. And none of those concern me. What concerns me are those that are sold out for the will of God and those that aren't. We can argue over the details, but we cannot argue over the purpose. We can argue over some of the particulars of how we get from here to there, but we can't refuse to go from here to there. In this time period, the nation of God was was struggling with an attack from within. And that only makes room for an attack from without. So the people of God in Judah under Abijah said, As for us, the Lord is our God. We've settled the issue. He's the king. He's the eternal. He's the sovereign. He's the ruler, the owner, the controller of my life. And we have not forsaken him. The priests who serve the Lord are sons of Aaron, and the Levites assist them. There are those who were called of God to minister, and there are those who were just decided to minister. The division was the same then as it is today. Those that have been born of the Spirit of God, that were called of God to minister, and those who simply occupied a position. Every morning and evening they present burnt offerings and fragrant incense to the Lord. They set out the bread on the ceremonially clean table and light the lamps on the golden lampstand every evening. We are observing the requirements of the Lord our God. There'll be fresh bread set before you today. And the presence of God has already shown Himself to be in the room. The real question is, can we say we're observing the requirements of the Lord our God? Is it your heart today, church, to be completely obedient? Is it your heart to be more than obedient? To be willing for anything that He tells you to do? In the Friday night home meeting... The brother that was bringing the word said, it's good to be obedient, but it's better to be willing and obedient. You might have to start in obedience and then learn the willingness. I love the idea that just do it because he said so, but he wants more than that. He wants you to do it because you want to do it. Amen. We don't witness because we have to witness. We don't talk about Jesus because we have to. We don't have an external motivation punishing us if we don't. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us as an internal motivation, driving us, encouraging us, leading us to do the will of God. Somebody say amen. Amen. God is with us. He is our leader. God is with us. He is our leader. You want to know if God is with you? Ask the question, is he my leader? And then when you answer your own question, are you telling the truth? If God is your leader, what did He lead you to do today? What did He lead you to do yesterday? In what way were you led by Him on Friday? Could God really be your leader and you go 24 hours without Him telling you anything? Could He really be your leader and you go weeks and months having only done what you decided to do? Romans 8.14 says, As many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. God is our leader. Well, if He is our leader, then pray tell, in what way is He leading you? 
One of the great benefits of fellowship is when you are in a dry and weary place, when you have heard no direction and maybe you are in danger of abandoning your post, you can look over at a fellow soldier called at a fellow time, a, a, a similar time and to an, a similar purpose and say, hey, what is the Lord sharing with you? And as you see the group marching, it helps you keep the cadence. As the man on your left and right are in step with the Spirit, it helps you stay in step with the Spirit. This is why we don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. The faithful remnant in Judah was able to say, God is with us. What was their proof? He is our leader. His priests with their trumpets will sound the battle cry against you. It is the job of the pastorate, the job of the priest of God, the job of the sons of God to declare the battle cry of our God. Oh, let me hear your battle voice, church. What does a battle cry sound like? Is there a hallelujah in the house? Are you prepared to sit and soak, to listen to a sage on a stage, or do you want to get in the battle? Do you got a hallelujah? Hallelujah. Oh, let me hear it, DJ. Let me hear it. Do you got a battle cry? See, the world is boastful and they're proud. They've got no problem standing in Walmart and calling down curses upon their fellow man. But we're shy and we're timid and we don't want to speak in other tongues or prophesy or declare the wonders of God in public. We don't want to cause a scene. I want to cause a scene. I want to cause such a big scene everywhere that I go that people take note that I've been with Jesus. The priest's job is to sound a battle cry. Men of Israel, do not fight against the Lord. He's speaking to the northern ten tribes. The God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. Can we say that it's a foolish proposition to go against God? Then we ought to warn people when they're doing it. This is why I say Allah is Satan. This is why I say Muhammad is a devilish pedophile prophet. We need to warn people that this is not two similar religions. This is not just different ways to express themselves to the same God. I know they're not the same God by what he leads the people to do. Our God calls us to lay down our lives to help one another. Our God calls us to see the salvation of the world through their love for him. He's not a violent warlord that cuts the heads off of people and does shameful thing with children. That is not our God. Islam is a problem that the church must rise to face. One of the reasons that we go to Romania is if you look at a map just to the east and south of Romania, we have entirely Muslim countries now. Turkey was once a Christian place. This is where Paul did much of his ministry. And Islam has run it over because the church became weak. Iran and Iraq, these are the lands that that Abraham wandered all over and God said would be his. And today, they are overrun with satanic opposition. I say that Eastern Europe should be known for something more than just being the poorer economies in Europe. It could be the place where there's a resurrection among the Christian church. It could be the place where a revival begins that is a front against the powers of Islam. Our brothers in the Far East, in China, are growing strong in the underground church. To the south of that, in Africa, they're growing strong in the name of Jesus. 
What if the Middle East was not the last and greatest barrier to the advancement of the gospel? What if it was our last and finest hour because we attacked from all directions with the love of our God? You can be prepared to defuse a bomb. You can be prepared to go to war and cut a man's head off. But what could, what could prepare you for the love of our God? A few minutes in the presence of God and it will melt the heart of a terrorist. A few minutes facing sincere, real, spirit-filled Christians certainly will make a dent. I'm not so tried as to believe that any one man, any one church is the answer. But I do know this. When we begin to raise a battle cry and we stand with the king as our leader, we will see the results that they saw in Second Chronicles 13. Now Jeroboam had sent troops around to the rear. So that while he was in front of Judah, the ambush was behind them. Judah turned and saw that they were being attacked from both front and rear. That's not normally a good situation. But at least no matter where you turn, there was something to do. (laughs) Oh, church, we don't retreat. We advance in a new direction. If you're surrounded by the enemy, at least everywhere you turn, there's something to do. We can sit around and bemoan what has happened to our society and I've spent my fair time doing that. Or you can look at the great opportunity. Surely the harvest fields have never been more ripe than they are now. We can say that America is not what it once was and lament what has been lost for us and what we've lost. Or we could look and see the great opportunity that lies before us. This was a nation that once sent more missionaries around the world than any other nation. Now other nations find it necessary to send their missionaries here. I would like to do the former without neglecting the latter. I think that the church of the living God is strengthened when we cross cultures and we cross borders for each other. When men lay down their national pride and pick up a heavenly mandate. In verse 14, Judah turned and saw that they were being attacked from attacked at both front and rear. Then they cried out to the Lord. The priests blew their trumpets, and the men of Judah raised the battle cry. What's your battle cry, church? Can I have a hallelujah? hallelujah. When everything has gone wrong, you don't have to go with it. Sometimes you can stand in the middle of a buzzsaw. You can stand in the middle of warfare. They can be falling all around you and raising your hands and saying hallelujah is in itself a battle cry. One brother among us has gone to some of the most difficult places and done nothing more than blow a simple shofar. And you say, why would you do something like Sometimes we just need a battle cry. Sometimes we need something to rally around. It doesn't need to make sense. It needs to make the Holy Ghost pleased with you. The priests blew their trumpets and the men of Judah raised a battle cry. At the sound of their battle cry, God routed Jeroboam and all of Israel before Abijah and Judah. What you cannot do, what you are not strong enough to accomplish, when we raise the battle cry in the name of the Lord, He will accomplish for you. I'm a pastor. I get all in your business. Almost every message, somebody comes. When it's a good message, five or ten people come and say, were you preaching about me? My answer is always yes. Yes, I was preaching to you specifically. Who else should I have been preaching to? I hope everyone feels that way. Let me preach to me for a minute. 
burdened, beat down, having missed the mark, feeling weak. Get into the presence of God and immediately I'm ready to go sound the battle cry. What we need is not more theology. What we need is not larger churches. Has there ever been any larger meeting places than there have been today? What we need is to be fueled by the very presence of God and raise a battle cry. I love the focus on how beautiful Jesus is. I love the focus on the outpouring of the Spirit. But let me ask you, for what? Is it just so that we can marvel at Him? Is it just so that we can say that He's wonderful? Or has He empowered us for a purpose? See, I say He's empowered us for a purpose. In First Chronicles 12... In verse 32, you don't even have to turn there. I want to tell you something. At a time period where David is in a civil war with Saul, this predates the other scripture. A terrible time period. There's the strangest verse. Men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 200 chiefs with all of their relatives under their command. Can you imagine in an entire nation only 200 men in a tribe that both understood the times and knew what to do? You know, in the debate between Mary and Martha, whether we sit at the feet of Jesus and worship Him or we get to work, I say, why not both? Why not worship Him so that you can work for Him? I don't see the two as mutually exclusive. I actually think when you do hard work for Him, it is a form of worshiping Him. Church, we go around the world not because we must, but because we want to. Sometimes it's easier to go around the world than it is across the street because we find we don't want to. I want to tell you that God planted you where you are because He wants fruit where you are. The same church that strives to exceed 40% in our giving towards missions is also needing to come into balance of this is a mission field. We go out, but if we go out with a different message than we stand here, doesn't that make us a hypocrite? I want to tell you that it's necessary that we raise a battle cry in this country and out of this country, in countries near to us and in countries far from us. If we have not forsaken the Lord, if He is our leader, if we have a battle cry, it makes no difference where the battle takes place. In fact, it ought to take place wherever we are. Can you say amen to that? I'm going to paint a bit of a negative picture. If you don't like it, Blame Ron Luce. If you do like it, then pat me on the back. I'm kidding. I, Ron Luce and Barna, the Christian statistician, put together these things seven or eight years ago. And it was crushing. It's a sobering picture. And I'm not going to run you through all of them because we would crawl under our chairs. But let me start with this as we move towards a solution following it. Today's teenagers, if you want to call them millennials, echo boomers, MTV generation, whatever you would like to call it, makes no difference. It's the largest generation that the world has ever known. And they're more connected than any generation in history. Every day, my children have the ability to speak with the church in India just by touching a device that's in their hands. My nine-year-old daughter can Skype with Annan's children in India, and they do. 
If you loosely define baby boomers, the most famous generation written about, as people that were born somewhere within 10 years following World War II. So today we're talking about people in their 60s and 70s. They came from an environment that was 35% Bible-believing, born-again Christians. In our nation, that generation, when the stats were done, could answer the question, we believe every word of the Bible, it is the word of God, we believe Jesus is the only way to be saved, and we consider ourselves born again. That generation, 35%. One of the saddest things that I could possibly say is that under that leadership, we've seen the most rapid decline in American history as far as the moral fabric of our nation. We've watched abortion become legalized. We've seen Eastern religions that did nothing for the nations they came from invade our country. We've seen what they call the sexual revolution We've seen monumental drug experimentation. The Ten Commandments have been pulled from our buildings, prayer from our schools, and under God taken out of the Pledge of Allegiance, most recently for the Air Force. The percentage that Barna, the Christian statistician, says of American teenagers alive today, just speaking of our country, not the world, that are Bible-believing, born again by the same criteria that the baby boomers were, is 4%. If 35% unleashed the most rapid decay in American history, then what will 4% do when they're in office? Aside from that vast percentage difference, think on this subject for a minute. The baby boomers grew up in a certain kind of starting place. Every teacher in this room is nodding their head already. This generation is growing up from a different starting place. Think on TV, music, internet, and media for a minute. This generation views 17 hours minimum of television a week. They see on average 14,000 sexual scenes every year. It's more than 38 sexual scenes in the television they watch every day. That's an interesting thing. That's an average. That's not high. That's not low. That's an average. By the time a child graduates from high school, he or she will have watched 19,000 hours of television, including more than 200,000 sexual acts and over a million acts of violence. And do you know what that does not include? Video games. This generation spends more than three hours a day Purely online surfing, not online working, not online gaming, online surfing. And they're the first to grow up with point-and-click pornography in their hands. When you speak of access and speak of saturation, nine out of every ten teenagers walking the planet, in the United States anyway, have seen porn online. Nine out of ten. 50% of all teenagers in this country as we sit here right now are no longer virgins. 
Hooking up doesn't even require relationship. 48% of high school seniors have had sex in the last three months, according to the blind surveys. 8,000 will contract an STD every single day, and I do not have the heart to tell you what the fastest growing STD is. One in ten high school girls will be raped. One in ten. During any two-hour period in this country, those statistics mean that 97 girls have been raped. One million are pregnant right now. Every two hours, 120 children are born to teenage mothers. Every two hours. Is that overwhelming? Just to teenage mothers, not including middle-aged suburbanites, not including other adults, just to teenage mothers, 340,000 abortions every year. When you think on alcohol and drugs, 33% of teenagers in the United States have been drunk in the last 30 days. One in four use illegal drugs. This is before they legalized drugs in so many places. Most people who are in public schools cite their biggest fear as violence. One in five of our kids admits to contemplating suicide. 1,500 succeed every year. During the time that it will take me to deliver this message... 960 will cut themselves. We're talking about our country alone, not worldwide. 960 in this country right now while I'm preaching will cut themselves. 160 will drop out of school. 178 are being physically abused while I'm preaching. 120 will run away from home. The statistics are that while I'm preaching right now, at least one teenager will shoot and kill himself. What causes this kind of behavior? Well, we could blame baby boomers, but I got to tell you, those of us that are hitting 40, those of us that are 50 now, we don't qualify for baby boomers. We're between these generations, and it's our turn now. The moral bankruptcy of American teenagers is something that ought to astound us all. 91% of people surveyed say there is no such thing as absolute truth. That's among the teenagers. Truth's all relative. 65% say there is no way to tell which is the true religion. 65% don't believe it is possible to tell which is the true religion. 53% believe Jesus committed sin. Thank you, Da Vinci Code. Thank you, Dan Brown. 53% believe Jesus committed sin. 40% of people that call themselves born-again teens believe Jesus committed sin. Are we falling down on the job? 75% of teens in America believe that the central message of the Bible, I want you to hear this, 75% of all teens in the United States, when asked the question, Is the central message of the Bible, God helps those who help themselves, answer yes. That is the central message of the Bible. Of course, it's not found anywhere in the Bible. Is that a problem? 
we could look at that and go, oh my God, there's no hope. Or you could say, what an opportunity. What a time God has put me in. If there's ever been a time where we're attacked from the front and the rear, when we're facing external pressure from the nations around us and the religions around us and facing internal pressure, it's now. This is the time when the American church needs a very great Savior. We need a very great revival. We need to call on God in a very great way. We need to raise a battle cry. The generations may depend upon it. This begs the question, has the church ever been in such a state before? Because this sounds so bad that you're like, oh, well, it surely has never been like this before. As I thought on that, I thought of the first century. At the end of the first century, after some 70 years of what we would call Christianity, wouldn't you think the church would be in better shape than it had ever been? I mean, we're now nearing the end of the last followers of Jesus who walked with him during his earthly walks, lives. Wouldn't you think that this would be the zenith of the church? Turns me to the book of Revelation. This is written near the close of the first century. We're going to be in Revelation 2. I'm going to float through these churches quickly because I just want you to hear a snippet from each one to give you kind of a snapshot. If we had social media and the churches were tweeting in the first century, these are the things that they would be discussing because this is what the Word of God said about them and to them. In Revelation 2, paraphrasing verses 4 and 5, you've forsaken your first love and fallen from the heights of your walk. We don't think of the early church that way, but they had the same problems that we had. They faced the same struggles that we have. If this was written today, perhaps it would say, America, you have forsaken your first love and fallen from your previous heights. And it was true then, and it's true now. If you look at the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2, starting in verse 10, you might see something paraphrased like this. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer or what you're going to suffer. He goes on to say, be faithful to the point of death. The church needed encouragement for what they were facing then, and we need it now. America, if you're afraid of what you're going to suffer, you need to exhibit faith even to the point of death. Could that not be said now? Why is it everyone feels called to non-Muslim countries? Pergamum. Revelation 2.14, you have people who hold to the teaching of Balaam. He goes on to discuss sexual immorality. Well, good thing that's not a problem anymore. America, your preachers teach anything for money, and you're rife with sexual immorality. We're at the place now where it's not even wise for us to pray for each other without standing next to your spouse. It's just not wise. Even when there's absolutely no negative intention. The reality is so many have fallen in these areas that it's best just to stay completely away from it. The Bible tells you to stand flat-footed and fight with the devil, but to run from sexual immorality. You move on to Thyatira in Revelation 2. Paraphrasing verses 20 through 24. You tolerate Jezebel, sexual immorality, adultery, 
learning Satan's deep secrets. Could be said America. You tolerate female authority that is driven from wickedness. You love sexual deviance and spend your time learning deep things that are not of God. In fact, they're of the devil. The church today is in the same position as the church was then. But we have the same king. We've always been attacked from the front and the rear. We've always needed to raise the battle cry. And the stakes have always been high. You know, each one of these places is a stone's throw from where we'll be in less than 24 hours. If you just hit the Red Sea and made a right, southeast followed, uh, not Red Sea, Black Sea, and followed it around, you'd be in Asia Minor. Every one of these churches were right there. You know, none of these areas are predominantly Christian today. Church, we've come to a time in our history where we can neither rest on the accomplishments of those who went before us, nor can we abdicate our responsibility to a future generation. The time to act is now. It's now in our home. It's now on our street. It's now in our city. Sardis, Revelation 3, 1 and 2. You're dead and dying. He goes on to say, wake up. I've not found your deeds complete. It could be said of America, you're dead and dying. Wake up. Your faith has no actions because you don't do anything. This is not a pastor trying to be negative about other ministries. I'm talking about us. We have to be led by the King of Kings. Philadelphia. Revelation 3, 8 through 11 could be paraphrased as I know you have little strength. Hold on to what you have so no one will take your crown. Could be said, America, you have little strength. Hold on because your crown is about to be taken. We don't even believe it's possible anymore. We've just X that right out of our theology. How about Laodicea? Laodicea could be summarized with the third chapter and 14th verse. Paraphrased, lukewarm, acquired wealth, but are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. America, our churches are lukewarm. You've acquired the wrong kind of wealth. In my sight, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. But we don't have to be. A few minutes in the oxygen-rich environment of the Holy Ghost will bring us back to life. He will breathe into us and the dead man can stand to his feet. If there be but bones of a prophet left, you rub up against the bones of the prophet and you'll spring to life. And we have so much more than the bones of Elijah here. The very presence of God comes into our midst. Oh, let's never let it turn into a circus. Let's never let it be a frivolity. When we were singing today about wide-eyed and mystified, I forgot you were here for a moment. And I danced and worshipped Him like I do when I'm alone because I love Him. And I don't want to let Him down. And I want to accomplish something in His name. I want to advance His glory and His reputation. I want people to be touched by Him the way that I've been touched by Him. I'm nothing without Him. I'm fool enough to believe that in Him, we're exactly what the world needs. The cure for their disease. If I'm hidden in Christ, then when Christ shows up in Romania, He will cure their diseases. 
If you're hidden in Christ, then your God-hating neighbor will be cured when he rubs up against Christ because you're in him. We have what they need. Why do you go across the world when you got lost people across the street? Because we can't do one without doing the other. They're both necessary. When I witness to my neighbor across the street, they think I just want them to come to my church. When I witness to someone in Romania, they know I can't get a thing out of it. Both are necessary. And you, you rest assured, I will tell the Romanians they need to come here. We need their help too. When we contemplate these things, let's acknowledge something together. As dire as the church was at the end of the first century, the gospel still made it from them to us. I've received it. It had the same power 2,000 years later as it had then. He touched me in my living room and I've never been the same. It made it from them to us, even though that's the shape the church was in. We don't have to feel weak. We don't have to be beat down. We have to acknowledge where we're at. And He will come in and be our strength. He'll be our power. He's the power of God unto salvation. The Holy Ghost is all we need. And you can't have Him unless you've been washed by Jesus. 1 John 3. Get to verse 7. When you get there, say, I'm there. 1 John 3 and verse 7. You know that sometimes when... Anybody got relatives that are getting along in years? <laughs> Some of you say, what did he say? <laughs> you got relatives getting along in years. And you know, they sometimes say things that you're like, oh, I can't believe he said that. In my house, you don't have to get well along in years to be like that. But everybody just kind of looks the other way, right? I mean... You reach the age of 90, you've earned the right to say whatever you want to say. We're just glad you're talking. I want you to think about the Apostle John, probably the youngest of the disciples in Jesus' ministry. And he's now an old man and he's lived long enough to outlive all of his companions. Man, that's tough. Why write sometimes, I've got a few of my children still doing well in your church. I mean, he says amazing things. He lived long enough to go through many battles. But in this one passage, just think about him as that loving but slightly frank uncle that you got that is getting along in years. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Does that sting a little bit? Don't you want him to clarify it a little bit? He's earned the right to say it exactly as he thought it. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. This has a certain clarity to it, doesn't it? Maybe he was from a generation that knew what it was to win a great war. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. 
Is that just kind of as blunt as could be? It's a little bit like some of us young guys were sitting around going, you know what I think? What I think is, well, you, you know what? What you think is wrong and what I think is. And he, he, he rung his, his glass at the Thanksgiving table and he said, if you do what's wrong, you're of the devil. If you do what's right, that's how you would know you're a child of God. So y'all shut up and let's eat. It was a way of cutting through the garbage in the day of the church. This is what's wrong with not calling evil evil from a pulpit and not declaring righteousness righteousness. In ambiguity, sin thrives. We have to draw clear lines. We need to acknowledge our position. We need to stand in it and advance it. There needs to be a battle cry. Can we say hallelujah? Hallelujah! Oh, as Brother Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 in verse 8, Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? When there's been no clear call, the battle rages on, but nobody gets ready for it. We can talk about ISIS somewhere else all day long and nobody cares. Start talking about them coming across uh, Texas's border and all of a sudden people are, they're Googling ISIS for the first time. They're reading about it. They want to know, well, what is this whole Islamo-fascism thing? Is there such a, I'm starting to see Facebook posts everywhere about the nature of Islam. You didn't care last year when I was talking about it and now everybody can, why? Because we're starting to find out it's going to affect us. Have you ever read about the thousand-year period in, in Europe's history where this was the battle of battles? Find out that guys, oh, well, we're going to Romania. A national hero in Romania is a guy named Vlad the Impaler. Hollywood made him into Dracula. Dracula was not somebody who turned into a bat. He was somebody who combated Islam in his day. He did it through carnal means, but in the 14th century, you were glad because it meant that you did not have to submit to Allah. Oh, church, this battle's been raging since the church began. Let's just get down to brass tacks. In Matthew 16, when Jesus is talking about the very revelation... 1618, I think. The very revelation that the church is founded upon. He makes a bold statement. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Didn't mean hell wouldn't try. Didn't mean hell wouldn't get some casualties in there. Didn't mean that your little aunt, sister, Susie's, whoever, would not fail to be a part of the church. But those who are in the actual church of Jesus Christ cannot be overcome by the world. The faith that we have overcomes the world. I don't have to be scared. It's been a long time since I was scared of anything except sin. If you're not scared of sin, something's wrong with you. You think you're stronger than you are. This pastor happens to know how pitifully weak I am. It's audacious of me to even stand here and speak of the power of God standing here the kind of failure that I am. The reason that I can do it is because I'm clinging to the identity He gave me instead of the one that I was earning for myself. I want to talk to you about my heart's cry, about the battle cry. Not just about Romania, not just across the world, I'm talking about across the street. It comes from Matthew 28. 
Tell me when you're in Matthew 28. If you have a Bible in here today, I want you to be in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, we're going to pick up in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Are you kidding me? Jesus Christ has resurrected from the dead, appeared to two women, appeared to the eleven, walked through a wall to do it, let Thomas touch him in his side. Now they're in Galilee, and some of them worshipped him, and some of them... Oh, but it wouldn't be us. We wouldn't do it, right? None of us. Oh, those, those bad guys. Blame it on the Jews. We blame everything else on the Jews. Of course, they're all Jews. We forget that. The king is Jewish. The greatest apostles were Jewish. The church came out of Jerusalem and was entirely Jewish. In fact, you were the add-on, not them. And I'm a pork-eating Gentile. So when I say it, there's no self-interest in it. I love bacon. I'll eat bacon until the resurrection. But I also fight and die for my Jewish friend's right to not to, even in Christ if he chooses not to. Some believed and worshipped and others doubted. I want you to know that from the resurrection to the end of the first century, it's always been the same. The church has consisted of believers and doubters. The church has consisted of those who were obedient and those who were not. The great question before us is, what will we be? Praise be to God that doubters can become worshipers. Praise be to God that those who didn't get it right on one day can repent and get it right on the next day. Problems from the beginning, but the solution has always been the same. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority. How much authority? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you know the story. When you find a therefore, find out what it's there for. If he has all of the authority, not some of it, not part of it, all authority, that leaves no authority out. He can do more than fix your speeding ticket, right? When you meet a policeman in that, and, and your friends, isn't that one of the first things you want to know? <laughs> it's like, do you know anybody in the... Uh, no, you people don't speed. I'm proud y'all are as holy as you are. Me and Elijah, occasionally we tuck our cloak into our belt. And um, all authority in heaven and on earth were given to Jesus. And he said something from it. This is our battle cry. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Just like in our opening scripture with Abijah's forces, Jesus is still with us. He's still leading us. God is our leader. And we still have a battle cry. We know this because we've not reached the end of the age. We might have come up against The close clock, maybe the two-minute buzzer is warning. But we've not reached the end of the age. If he's still our leader and we're still in a battle, there's still a battle cry and he'll still give a victory. 
We can't sit back on our hands and bemoan our situation. We need to listen to Mordecai's voice. Our older Jewish uncle. We're the little adopted one with the name change. Perhaps you've come to such a position as this for such a time as this. You know, when I look around, I know everybody in the room. One new friend today. Everybody else I've known. Some of you, I remember when you got filled with the Holy Ghost. Others of you, I watched you get born again. Some watched me get born again in this room. We're not here by accident. This is not happenstance. The King of glory picked you for a purpose. He's got work for us to do. Not because we must be obedient, but because we're willing to be obedient. It's our heart's passion to. It's what gives us meaning and purpose on the planet. We don't go across the world because we must. We go because we want to. We don't go across the street because we have to. We go because we want to. Four very powerful words in this battle cry. Go. Make, baptize, teach. If you're the note-taking kind and you didn't listen to anything that I was saying before this, you need to write on your paper, go, make, baptize, teach. Right before Jesus is taken up before their very eyes, He says this, go, make, baptize, teach. Let's spend a minute on go. Is that all right? This is our battle cry. It starts with the word go. Which begs the question, where? Well, for me today, it's Romania. Where is it for you today? See, he said go. He didn't tell you where. Because he wants to lead each one of you where. But he didn't tell anybody, sit on your salvation until you get dusty. He didn't do it. In fact, look at Acts 1-4. Get there with me. Say there, when you're there, we're still on the topic of go. The only time I can remember he said to them, wait, was until they got the baptism in the Holy Ghost. How ironic, some want to go without it and others don't want to go with it. In Acts 1-4, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. Kind of odd since he told them to go. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The only thing that should hinder you from going is getting the power of the Holy Ghost. Otherwise, what would you go with? I know what you'd do. You'd go and give them a great gospel according to Eric. And what would that look like? It'd be an all-meat diet. It'd be... Lots of time at the gun range, very little time in prayer, you know. It might include all kind of things that are not part of the gospel. We don't go with our own gospel. We don't preach ourselves. What do you go with? The power of the Holy Ghost. He's the great evangelist. You know what the plan is for Romania, by the way? Get full of the Holy Ghost and go. That, we had a, a, a strategy meeting last night. The extent of our strategy was how we were going to pack and that we were going to get full of the Holy Ghost and go. That's always been the strategy. We don't need a better plan than that. We need better men who will carry out that plan, but we don't need a better plan. Get full of the Holy Ghost and go. 
So, well, I'm not going on a missions trip today, Pastor. You ought to be on a missions trip every day, friend. So you're in full-time Christian ministry. There is no other kind. All ministry is full-time. I'm a pastor whether I'm a pastor here or wherever I am. I work for the Lord in, in little valleys, on the other side of rivers, Judah, wherever we have to go. Because it's our very great delight. It's interesting, though. If you swim across the Patuka River in Honduras and nearly die doing it, it seems easier to share the gospel there where it's so obvious. We just went to Walmart to get some bread, you know. I mean, we just want to get the bread and want to go home. What if that's a missions trip? What if it's just as important when you go to Walmart as when you swim across a river in Honduras? See, it's a matter of perspective. We're being attacked from the front and the rear. It doesn't matter which way you turn. Someone is there who needs your battle cry. We're not in the position where we can live inside of safe lines. You are surrounded by lost people. You are surrounded by the hurting and the dying. We can lament it and blame someone else or we can take responsibility for our lives. You've got a battle cry. It starts with going. Going where? Going to wherever he would speak to you. Say, well, he hasn't spoken to me to go anywhere. Then he may not be leading you. Oh, good, I don't have to go. No, I think you're missing the greater point. If he is your leader, he's your God. Let him lead you. So I just don't feel led. You know, I bet if you begin to expect it, you'll feel led. I've noticed something. He doesn't lead me to do anything that I was not contemplating. But if I contemplate it, he leads me into ever new areas. How about this? So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? We've always been full of self-interest. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive, what's that word? Do you have it? Do you want more of it? Are you going to use what you get? Receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my... You will be my... What's our battle cry? It's got to start with going with power. Where? In Jerusalem. Could somebody please raise their hand and tell the Lord, we already in Jerusalem? And then you realize, probably it was Peter who said it. He knows that already. Your witness starts where you are. Are you hearing me? Say, well, some go to Romania and some go here and some sing and some preach and some and some and some. Michael gets to go to the prison. Where do you get to go? He didn't tell you where. He said, go. Are you going for God wherever you're going? That's the first part of the battle cry. Are y'all hearing me this morning? You know, I'm not going to be here for the next three messages. And my flight doesn't leave till six. (laughs) Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the very ends of the earth. This is like saying your neighbors, your countrymen, your near countries, and the furthest countries on the planet. Where do we go? Wherever you're going. 
Oh, man. And the next one, it may get clear. The first part of the battle plan is you have to go. The second part of the battle plan is we make. The kingdom of God makes disciples. The kingdom of God is production oriented. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. The kingdom of God is like an investor who puts something on deposit and expected a return. The kingdom of God is not passive. It's not stagnant. It's not sitting still. It makes something. Even if we're being told today that we're consumers. In fact, the point of the kingdom is for your consumption. I don't have to say shame on those people. The Lord himself will say it. But what's more pertinent for us sitting here is the kingdom of God makes. Before all the big language and the grand claims, the story of Jesus was about a Jewish man living in a Jewish region among Jewish people, calling people back to the way of a Jewish God. When he said, go and make disciples, he had grown up in a culture that was shaped by scriptures like Deuteronomy. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 11. Oh, do y'all want me to stop now? You, you want to quit? I mean, cause we could just stop and go. Do you got it already or, or should we keep going? Are you sure? You sure? James, what do you think? You think keep going? Then let's go to Deuteronomy 11. I'm just going to say sometimes people just finish their notes to do it. Other times there's a reason. If you get the going down, then the question becomes, what do I do when I'm there? And where is there and where does there start? Well, we're good at those kind of questions. Look at Deuteronomy 11, 18. Let's look at it in its Jewish perspective. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, write them on the door frames of your houses and gates so that your days and the days of your children may be in the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers as many days that the heavens are above the earth. If you carefully observe these commands I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of His ways, and to hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out these nations before you. It gets even better as you go on. How, what on earth does that have to do with making? Discipleship starts not in a class called Discipleship Helps. It doesn't start from a pulpit. Discipleship cannot even be done at a long distance. When Jesus said, go make disciples, He had Talmudim in mind. He, he had in mind those who were studying to be like the rabbi for the purpose of doing what the rabbi did. And it started as young as the age five or six when you woke up, when you walked along the road, when you went in and out of a house, it was a lifelong daily pursuit, not a class. When Jesus said, go make disciples, it involved you sharing every bit of your life with someone. And that would make something. 
It did not involve you dragging someone to church and going, Pastor, it's your responsibility. You know, we're not the SPCA. It's not our job to take in every lost stray that you can find. It's not. It's our job as the people of God, not this institution. We're supposed to go and make. What does it look like to make? You may have got enough of the Jewish roots teachings from this ministry to have heard some of this before, but it's worth thinking about again. The Bhava Bhaktra. This is a tractate in the Jewish Talmud. If you don't like that I quote it, get over yourself. It's true. Under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. From six upwards, we accept him and stuff him with the Torah like he were an ox. What is discipleship? How often is little Anna J.L. eating? Man, every time I have been around Nick and Sam, she is looking for food. She's grunting. We call it rooting in our house. She's just searching everywhere. And so she's healthy. And she's getting strong. And she's putting on weight. You want to make disciples? You got to be around somebody enough to feed them the word until they can feed themselves the word. You got to be around them. You got to rub shoulders with them. 1 John 2, verses 5. And six are worth reading. In 1 John 2, we see this familiar passage. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. How do we walk? How do you make then? You go and teach people to walk out the faith. What's wrong with sitting and watching church on TV? You're not learning to walk out the faith. What's wrong with just being a long distance member via internet? You're not learning to walk out the faith. We're supposed to be involved in each other's lives. Not just one pastor to one person. You are involved in making something in each other's lives and in the lives of the people that you go to. Amen. Nolan. Nolan and I, when we met, I talked to him about the gospel, but we met on a move. We were moving somebody who's no longer in the church. <coughs> While we're carrying stuff, we're talking about Jesus. Then I invited Nolan to come and help build a fence. There can be benefits to discipling people. Carry that. It's what Jesus wants you to do. (laughs) Not strong enough? Grow strong. I'm kidding. Get filled with the Holy Ghost. We began to share our lives together. One of the reasons that Matthew and Wade and I are pastoring together is we have shared the better part of two decades together. It has made something of us. Who are you letting in your life? Can you say that your life is making something? Because that is the expectation of Jesus. When he said, go make disciples, he had in mind things like one of the earliest sages in the Mishnah, Yozi ben Yozer. What a great name, Yozi ben Yozer. Yozer. Said to the disciples, Cover yourself with the dust of your rabbi's feet. 
How close are we supposed to spend with each other? How interactive is it supposed to be? If they kick up a dust cloud, it's supposed to get on you. Maybe that's why Jesus said to shake the dust off of your feet when someone didn't accept. You could go on with this on and on and on. The Bible actually describes the ties between a teacher and the student is greater than that of a father and son. And that puts Luke and Matthew into perspective when he said, if you don't hate your mother and father, you're not worthy of me. Matthew said, if you don't love me more than. And he said, what is it, a contradiction? No, it's not. Jesus, when he said, go and make disciples, envisioned a relationship that was so close that it produced something. If you're a part of a church where they say that the pastor's job is not to make disciples, find a new pastor. And if you're sitting out here thinking your job is not to make disciples, you need to find a new attitude. There's only one reason that you would not be making disciples, and that is you have not been made one yourself. You can't make somebody into something that you're not. Everything gives birth according to its kind. We go, we make, and we baptize. Now, when I say baptism, the first thing that comes to everyone's mind is water. In the Great Commission, he doesn't mention water. Never mentions it. In fact, in no gospel where he's compelling people to go and preach, when he mentions baptism, is he saying that it must be in water? In fact, in Hebrews 6, he says an elementary teaching of the faith are baptisms, plural. This is because in the Jewish mindset, baptism was not just water. Baptism was a complete immersion into something, not just water. We think that we're supposed to go and what we make is an adherent to the sinner's prayer and then we dunk them in water and call them done. We go to wherever He has sent us every day that He sends us and our goal is to make in someone's life the kingdom of God possible. Let it break forth through our actions, through our deeds. Let them follow our footsteps and see what it's like to walk with the kingdom of God. And when they desire it, we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How could that be? When you read the book of Acts, they only baptized in the name of Jesus and in descends the theologians. The point was never to get somebody wet. It was to immerse them in the Hashem. It was to get them so thoroughly inundated with the character, the authority, the body of work of Jesus that they wanted to be like Him. And how were they going to know about the authority, the character, and the body of work of Jesus? They were going to see it in you. That's why you were sent. That's why you had to go. It's because when you showed up, God was leading you. And when you gave your battle cry, He's giving you victory. The kingdom of darkness is falling from their lives. And every day they watch you walk, they're seeing what it's like to walk with Jesus. We've dunked somebody in water and call them done. Most of the people that I have baptized are not here today. Of course, when they actually get immersed in God's Spirit, that's a different story. John 16, 12 says this, I have much more to say to you, much more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. 
He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Friends, that's a baptism of sorts. When the Holy Spirit has so immersed your life that the very things that are of Jesus are now being made known to you, you are entering into His name, His character, His body of work, His authority, and His reputation. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. What do we do? We go. And when we're there, what do we do? We make disciples through our daily lives, close with people. And in making disciples, we begin to immerse them into all that is Jesus. I did this and it was wrong. This is how Jesus would have done it. Now watch me depend upon Him and you'll see it change in my life. And if it changes in my life, it can change in yours. You can't go present yourself as perfect. You're not. And you can't go and say, I'm just a poor, miserable sinner. You're not. You're caught in the tension between being declared holy and striving to be what you've been declared. And that tension will form a disciple. Because they'll learn to do it too. You baptize them. One day they'll, they'll say to you, I have a desire to make a public statement. I want the world to know what's going on. And you baptize them in water and that's amazing. But we don't stop there. They come and say, I, I have such dreams to achieve for God and I feel impotent to do it. Say, that's alright. He will fill you with Himself just like He has me. And I get filled with the Holy Ghost and it doesn't stop there. How many of you know that Peter was filled at Pentecost, but he was refilled a few chapters later? Paul was filled in the ninth chapter, but refilled many times later. It's a daily washing in his presence. We have to worship him in spirit and truth. Where are they going to see that? Will they see it from a clerical color or see it from a program? With all respect to those things, Dennis Bennett wore a clerical color and was a fine, spirit-filled man. A great example. But it wasn't the color. They have to see it from you. You know, most people never get a chance to get even close to their pastor. That's right. Well, the work has fallen to the congregations. We cannot sit back while there's so much to be done and so few to do it. This is our time. This is our hour. The last one was teach. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. We will make our close in 2 Timothy. Have I given you something to think about? Better yet, have we given you something to act on? What does it mean to teach? If we go and we make and we baptize, what does it mean to teach? If making disciples, stuffing them with the Word every day, then what does it mean to teach? Aren't they one and the same? Was Jesus just being redundant? He means teach in this kind of way. 2 Timothy 1, look at verse 11. And of this gospel, I was appointed a... That's somebody who goes. And an apostle and a teacher... That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that He is able to guard what He has entrusted to me for that day. 
Some of you have what I've entrusted to him. I believe that to be an incorrect interpretation, but if you're stuck on it, you can leave it there. I would submit to you that God invested something in Paul, not the other way around. That makes verse 13 make sense. What you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Jesus Christ. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to teach? It means that you received something from heaven and that caused you to go. And while you were there, you made disciples. You taught people to walk like you walk, to walk like Jesus has taught you to walk. And then you baptize them into all that is His name, character, authority, and reputation. And what is it that you teach? Jesus said, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. And the Apostle Paul said, I was entrusted something, Timothy, and now it's being entrusted to you. And in the next chapter, he says, entrust it to other men. What is it that we teach? We teach people to rightly handle the kingdom of God. We teach them that a great deposit has now been put in them and they have a responsibility to carry it forward. In essence, we teach them to go. You know that you have run into a real Christian when he reproduces himself. Say, oh, no, 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 we reproduce Christ. You are Christ if you're a real Christian. It's not important that people walk like you and talk like you, but it is important that they follow you to the extent that you follow Jesus. I could spend hours teaching you that. Paul sent Timothy to a church to remind them of his way of life, which agrees with what he teach everywhere in all churches, he said. Titus was a true son in the faith. A son how? He wasn't biologically. He was a son because he walked like Paul walked, and Paul walked like Jesus. This is how Paul told the Corinthian church, follow me as I follow Christ. Teach, teach what? Teach them to obey Jesus the way that you just obeyed Jesus. Friends, this is a period of years more than likely. We can't sit on our hands any longer. And I'm going to tell you the truth. So much has been invested in you and you have so much potential. In this room, we have apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists. We have the sons of pastors in this room. We have daughters of prophetesses in this room. The question is not how much has been invested in you. The question is what are you going to do with it? Today, I'm going to get on a plane. If it wasn't Romania, it would be somewhere else. And it's been many other places. I don't value going there any more than I value going across the street because they're both going. The question is, what are you being led to today? Could we stand to our feet?